0: Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio.
1: Welcome to our latest Book Dreams bonus episode. I'm Julie Sternberg here as always with Evie Hallam. Today's theme is, wow, have we read a lot of good books so far this summer?
0: Yes. It's been magical. Just one great read after the other. I don't think I've logged this many hours with my nose in a book since I was a kid and maybe not even then. In fact, I've been reading so much that I gave myself a repetitive reading injury. Wait, sorry, what? Yeah. (laughs) You heard it right. (laughs) Um, Apparently, my posture isn't so great when I'm reading. And so now I've read so much in this terrible posture that basically every muscle in or near my shoulders, starting with my neck down through my arms, is on fire. Oh, no. Yeah, no, it was bad. But things are getting better. I bought a pillow tablet stand and remote control page turner for my Kindle. So now I can read hands-free with my head fully supported. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) And yes, you can make fun of me if you need to.
1: (laughs) Absolutely not. I'm just laughing that these things exist, and I'm so glad that they do. I mean... Every day when I'm sitting and reading instead of exercising, I tell myself, well, at least I'm not injuring myself, Mm. but it turns out I might be.
0: No, it's true. You might.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm very sorry that you were in pain and very glad to hear that you're feeling better. Was the pain
0: worth it? Oh, absolutely worth it. So there are three novels I want to talk about today. The first one is Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver it came out last October and won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction this year. It's a retelling of David Copperfield, but set in Appalachia in the 1990s and the aughts. Just a quick aside, I have to confess I didn't know until I listened to an interview with Barbara Kingsolver this weekend that it's Appalachia, not Appalachia. Did you know that?
1: I mean, I've definitely heard both, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say I never paused to
0: wonder, which was actually right. <laughs> well, you're one step ahead of me because I'd never even heard the Appalachia version, which is the right version. Anyway, returning to Demon Copperhead, this is one of those books where you're just in it from page one because you fall in love with the narrator the moment you meet him. So I'm just going to read you the opening couple of paragraphs. Ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. First, I got myself born. A decent crowd was on hand to watch, and they've always given me that much. The worst of the job was up to me, my mother being, let's just say, out of it. On any other day, they'd have seen her outside on the deck of her trailer home, good neighbors taking notice, pestering the tit of trouble as they will. All the dog-breath air of late summer and fall, cast an eye up the mountain and there she'd be little bleach blonde smoking her palm Malls, hanging on that railing like she's captain of her ship up there and now might be the hour it's going down. This is an 18 year old girl we're discussing all on her own and as pregnant as it gets. (laughs) I mean, don't you just want me to shut up so you can go get the book and then start reading immediately?
1: Yes, I love that little bleach blonde smoking her palm Malls, hanging on that railing like she's captain of her ship. I mean, that's fabulous.
0: I know it's great.
1: But no, I don't want you to shut up because I like hearing you talk. I have, however, been wanting to read the book. And that opening definitely, definitely makes me want to move it to the top of my granted exceedingly tall stack.
0: Yes. Well, you won't be sorry when you finally get around to it. Mm. So the whole story is told in flashback by demons, starting from his early childhood through young adulthood. It's a coming of age story like David Copperfield and it's about poverty and hardship, love, brutality, football and addiction. And this is all set against the backdrop of the rise of the opioid addiction industry. So I will not sugarcoat this. What demon endures in this book is almost unendurable and you, the reader, endure it with him. But that voice and his wit and humor and his essential goodness are so powerful that even when the story is painful, you don't want to put the book down. Um, Barbara Kingsolver has said that she was aiming to write a masterpiece with this. And, you know, that's a really big word. I I can't say whether she succeeded But I will say Demon Copperhead reminds me, do you remember what Kevin Birmingham said in episode 101 about how Dostoevsky writes from the perspective of a single person in order to extend out and tell the story of a larger world? This book does that. And then the other thing it does is it gets you deep into the deprivations and the abundant beauty of a small town in Appalachian, Virginia, which is one of the great gifts of the book.
1: I mean, it just sounds fantastic. I am so excited to read it. What's
0: next on your list? What else do
1: I have to look forward to?
0: Okay, next is Deacon King Kong by James McBride. So Deacon King Kong is set mostly in 1969 in a housing project in southern Brooklyn. It centers on the story of an elderly alcoholic church deacon called Sportcoat, who, for reasons even he himself doesn't understand, shoots a 19-year-old drug dealer in the head at point-blank range in broad daylight in front of a crowd of spectators right at the beginning of the novel. So as you can imagine, this act sets a whole lot of other events in motion. The first half of the novel, you're mostly getting to know the people in the community, and the book is full of fabulous, memorable characters. You know, there's minor mafiosos and the women who run the church, Sportcoat's dead wife who appears and argues with him on a daily basis. There's a mysterious Irishman called the governor who owns a bagel shop in the Bronx. And then in the second half of the book, all the threads start to come together until by the end, all the mysteries are revealed. Hmm. And interestingly... Deacon King Kong actually has some overlap with Demon Copperhead, which I didn't realize before I started reading it. You know, they've both got tons of great characters and there's a feeling of sweep to the story. And then they both deal with the impact on a community of a drug epidemic. In this case, the arrival of heroin.
1: I'm sitting here trying to figure out whether there's a name of a character that I like better than Sport Code, but I think that might be my favorite. I know. Character name of all time. It's, it's fabulous. pretty good. And what a terrific month of reading you've had. I you know. said you had three books. What's the first? Yes,
0: I do. So the third book could not be more different from the first two. The third book is No One Is Talking About This by Patricia Lockwood. Do you remember how we tried to interview Patricia Lockwood for an episode about poetry?
1: I do remember that and
0: it didn't work out, which was sad. Yes, it was very sad. And now I am 10 times more heartbroken that we failed because her first novel is incredible. So for listeners who haven't heard of Patricia Lockwood, she's got a really interesting backstory. She started by publishing her poems on Twitter, which, you know, ordinarily would mean that her poems are kitschy and pseudo-intellectual and pretentious and awful. (laughs) But in her case, her poems are funny and cutting and insightful and really just not like anyone else's. To me, it's like she holds a funhouse mirror up to the world and somehow you see the world more clearly in that distorted reflection. So she wrote a poem called the rape joke, which just exploded online and was part of her first published poetry collection. And then she wrote a memoir called priest daddy about her childhood that focused on her father. Who's an ordained Catholic priest. Um, He became a priest after he was married and had children. So he's one of a very small number of Catholic priests to be married Mm, with children. Anyway, Patricia Lockwood brings all of her brilliance to No One is Talking About This. I can't stop thinking about this book. So let's see. There's an unnamed female narrator who shares a lot of biographical details with Patricia Lockwood. She became famous on the internet, and now she travels around doing speaking engagements about online life. The narrator tells the story in two parts— Part one is all about what she calls the portal, which is essentially social media and any other way you can think of that you waste time on the internet. Her novel reads a lot like her poetry. There are short paragraphs of observation and description, and I want to give you just two to give you a taste. These are from the very beginning of the book. She felt along the solid green marble of the day for the hairline crack that might let her out. This could not be forced. Outside, the air hung swagged and the clouds sat in piles of couch stuffing. And in the south of the sky, there was a tender spot where a rainbow wanted to happen. Then three sips of coffee and a window opened. To me, that's how it feels when I am wasting time on the internet. Like I can't just turn it off. Mm. Something has to shift, you know. Right. 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 Okay, here's the next one. Capitalism. It was important to hate it, even though it was how you got money. Slowly, slowly, she found herself moving toward a position so philosophical even Jesus couldn't have held it. That she must hate capitalism while at the same time loving film montages set in department stores. Yes,
1: that captures it so perfectly. I do. I I, like, I know capitalism is bad, but I do so love a nice film montage in a department
0: store. Yeah, that's genius. And, and, you know, just don't think about any of this too closely, right? Just all of these things are true. So, Like I said, part one is mostly spending time with the narrator in the portal, not really knowing where the story is going and not caring all that much because A, you're just happy to be hanging out with Patricia Lockwood and B, the book is short so you don't stay in the dark for all that long. Mm. And there are some plot points developing in part one that become essential in part two, but mostly you're in the portal getting that Queasy feeling you get when you spend too much time online skimming crap that has no intrinsic value whatsoever, <laughs> and then just when you can't take any more, part two comes along, and the narrator's family experiences an extended crisis that I won't spoil, but suffice it to say, this crisis can only be dealt with and lived through in real life, hands-on, no mm-hmm. portal. Yeah, and suddenly you get Patricia Lockwood's genius in setting up this contrast. You know, you get just how trivial 99% of what we do online is when you hold it up against something truly meaningful like this family crisis. Which, you know, that isn't news, right? We all know what a brain suck the internet is. But I was shocked by how many of the memes and articles that she references in this book that I was familiar with even though I don't use social media very much and I don't think of myself as someone who spends ridiculous amounts of time online. I mean, obviously I know I waste time online, but what I hadn't realized, what was really surprising to me about this book, and maybe it's obvious and I should have realized it, but the extent to which all of us who are wasting time in the portal are consuming exactly the same things, Mm -hmm. the same stories, the same jokes, ideas, outrage, you know, so much of which is shallow or unimportant or irrelevant. So when we're finally physically together, we only have the same things to talk about, right? Which makes for just a narrow, boring, trivial world. And that's the part that is freaking me out and making me consider swearing off pointless internet use forever.
1: (laughs) I mean, I guess my only thought about that is that we steer ourselves into a particular channel, Right. I don't think you are necessarily, you and I, we're in the same channel, but we're probably not in the same channel as people who get fed into a different stream.
0: Right. Probably not. But we're mostly only encountering people who hang out in the same channel. So A, we're all in the same channel and B, we're not getting any other inputs. It's just a very Bad, narrow, boring situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that.
1: I get that. And that makes me want to talk about a book, one book at least, that doesn't seem to be getting much buzz in the portal where I also spend way too much time. Mm-hmm. So let's just talk about it briefly here. Um, it's a really interesting novel called Kairos by a German author named Jenny Erpenbeck. And it tells the story of an epic love affair that begins in East Berlin at the end of the 1980s just before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So here's how the book begins. This is a quote from the very start of the preface. Will you come to my funeral? She looks down at her coffee cup in front of her and says nothing. Will you come to my funeral? He says again. Why funeral? You're alive, she says. He asks her a third time. Will you come to my funeral? Sure, she says. I'll come to your funeral. Huh. So you get the sense from the very beginning that we are dealing with a relationship that has gone awry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But when it begins, you know, we leave the preface and we go back in time. And when it begins, the woman in the couple, Katrina, is only 19 years old. And the man, Hans, is in his 50s and married. Hmm. Predictable power imbalances and toxic dynamics ensue. Yeah, And to tell the full truth, the the book in my view, bogs down in those. I almost gave up on it. But it is saved by two things. First, the writing style. And by that, I really mean the style that begins after the preface. But it is really unusual and interesting. What Erpenbeck can do in one paragraph, she likes to shift among perspectives in a particular paragraph. So she'll tell you what Katrina is seeing. She'll tell you what Hans is seeing. She'll go back to Katrina's, then she'll go to his. And it should be confusing this style, but instead it just makes the reader feel deeply, deeply immersed in the scene. Hmm. You sort of feel like, you know, I'm, I'm there and there are lots of different cameras and I understand what everyone is thinking all at once which isn't usually how a book is written. No. At most, if the author is changing perspective, you get one paragraph from one perspective, and then the next paragraph might be from the other. So very interesting writing style that made me think a lot. And then second, the book is as much about the fall of the Berlin Wall and the decline of Eastern Berlin as it is about the dissolution of Katrina and Hans's relationship. By which I mean the author uses the shifts in their relationship to symbolize shifts that are happening in Berlin, mm-hmm. which is just really interesting. And it's, I always like reading a book where um, there is a compelling story that you're interested in, but at the same time, there's a lot to think about that's not necessarily directly tied to the story. Mm-hmm. So here's how Dwight Garner in the New York Times review of the book puts it. He says... Clinging to the undercarriage of Urban Beck's sentences, like fugitives, are intimations of Germany's politics, history, and cultural memory. Kairos definitely is a book that I'm very happy to have read, even though there were some moments that felt skippable to me, Um, but worth it, worth it. Um, I also read a book that's very much part of the zeitgeist, everyone in our corner of the internet, I feel like seems to be reading it and talking about it. It's called Yellow Face by R.F. Kwan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In essence, it tells the story of a white author named June, who steals the manuscript of her Asian American novelist friend, Athena, after Athena dies in a freak accident. June decides to edit Athena's novel and send it to her own agent, meaning June's agent, as her own work. Yellow Face is a satire of the publishing industry and of the role that race plays in it. I'm a little hesitant to say much about the book because I'm really not sure I can add much to the conversation. I thought it was very well done. Although satires tend not to be my favorite books, I always feel a little bit at a remove from the story. Mm-hmm. The story really isn't primary. It really f- often feels like a device to make a point, yeah, uh, a different point, which is true, I think, of Yellowface. But it's, it's a very well done book. And I also wanna point out that it can be nice when lots of people are talking about a book or one thing, although it can also, of course, as you said, be limiting. But those kinds of discussions and cultural moments can bring people together, and we do need some of that. Okay, so
0: you're saying I shouldn't swear off the internet altogether?
1: Oh, maybe 90, 95%, but not 100. <laughs> okay. okay, fair. <laughs> All right. And I'm going to say that's it for this Book Dreams bonus episode. We always love hearing from you. Let us know what you're reading and loving, please. You can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com.
0: We're also on Twitter and Instagram. Many thanks to our producer, Sean Franco-Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find me at com and Julie Julie com, And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Oh,